Hi, and welcome to the Midlife Feast, the podcast for women who are hungry for more in this season of life. I'm your host, Dr. Jen Salib Huber. I'm an intuitive eating dietitian and naturopathic doctor, and I help women manage menopause without dieting and food rules. Come to my table, listen and learn from me, trusted guest experts in women's health, and interviews with women just like you. Each episode brings to the table juicy conversations designed to help you feast on midlife. And if you're looking for more information about menopause nutrition and intuitive eating, check out the Midlife Feast community, my monthly membership that combines my no-nonsense approach that you all love to nutrition with community so that you can learn from me and others who can relate to the cheers and challenges of midlife. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of the Midlife Feast. My guest today is Dr. Gregory Dodell. Dr. Dodell is an endocrinologist who practices in the United States, and he is one of the few weight-inclusive providers having conversations about diabetes in particular and trying to broaden the conversation beyond cutting carbs and losing weight. So in my interview with Dr. Dodell, I ask him some of the big questions that you, all of you often ask me, which is how much do carbs actually matter? Do I need to cut out sugar? And what's wrong with someone telling me that I should try to lose weight to manage my diabetes? So this is kind of the third in a series that was, that has happened this season on the podcast. So we first had Val Schoenberg talking about insulin resistance and menopause. Then Danielle Bublitz was talking talking about some of the dietary myths and the things that we should be adding in to manage diabetes. And so this third conversation with Dr. Dodell, I think is a nice way to round out the medical conversations um, around diabetes, especially um, through that weight inclusive or health at every size lens. So I hope you enjoyed as much as I did. And as always, let me know if you have any questions. Welcome, Dr. Dodell, to the Midlife Feast. How are you? I'm good. It's a rainy, floody day in New York, but other than that, I'm good. Well, it's a rainy day in the Netherlands, so we have that in common today. Perfect. Perfect. (laughs) But otherwise, very good. Thank you. Excellent. Thanks so much for taking the time. Uh, We've been talking about all things related to diabetes and insulin resistance on the podcast this month. And um, I'm really excited to have your opinions kind of into this conversation to round out the medical conversation piece that sometimes really makes things a little bit messy, um, you know, for people who may be trying to navigate this in a weight inclusive way. So before we dive into the discussion, um, can you just take a minute to introduce yourself to our listeners? Sure. I'm Greg Dodell. I'm a private endocrinologist in New York City, my own practice, uh, Central Park Endocrinology. I am married to Alexis Connison, who's a psychologist um, at the Anti-Diet Plan, which I'm assuming at some point you could ask how I started practicing this way. So I figured I would just <laughs> jump to that and just say pretty much from her. And uh, and yeah, I'm looking forward to talking to you and uh, and hopefully your listeners will enjoy. Yes. And uh, Alexis's book is a fantastic book and resource and definitely one that um, that I recommend. And I should probably ask her to be on the podcast as well. But why don't you just tell us a little bit, how did you get interested in health at every size? Because obviously, your specialty would be one that would be considered, you know, fairly conventional in terms of, of the approach. And regardless of the specialty, haze or health at every size is not typically conventional. So how did this all get started? Totally. Yeah, I mean, my first 
post really like on Instagram that was like geared towards this was basically like endocrinologists are perfectly positioned to practice this way or have these discussions because it is so much of a metabolic specialty and so many of the patients that we see have faced you know the weight stigma the weight discrimination the stigma with regard to like dealing and having diabetes and you know all the stuff that you talk about and menopause and all these life changes and body changes so endocrinologists are really perfectly positioned to do that if we can do it in the right way um to handle these tough you know phases of life and conditions and all this stuff and how to get into it as i said with really from alexis um because we both had similar training backgrounds the same hospital even she did her doctorate in bariatric surgery evaluations and the psychological ramifications and the impact on that and then we both went into private practice and she was still doing these bariatric surgery evaluations and coming home and being like this is just not working you know these patients are struggling and this and that she came across health at every size mindful eating and it took like 10 years for me to like really get it probably because it's so you know ingrained of like how we're supposed to practice and i just started reading about it i read her book you know rough draft and did like a work some workshops and started following people on instagram and i was like it just clicked you know and then uh started seeing patients you know from this lens and just the more i did it the more it made sense to me and continues to make sense to me i think that that experience from a a professional and a personal um perspective is really relatable because i know that when i after practicing as a dietitian and as a naturopathic doctor for 15 years, very much in the food as medicine, very much in the traditional view or kind of lens of nutrition, that when I saw, you know, kind of when the when the wool came off, you know, that that veil was lifted of like, wait a minute, there actually isn't a lot of evidence that weight loss as a therapeutic intervention that is prescribed can actually work in the way that we're telling people it can. Um, and so when people come to you and and they are exposed to this kind of weight inclusive approach, what does that look like? If somebody has diabetes as as an endocrinologist, what does it look like when you're practicing with that weight inclusive lens? Good question. I mean, so I talk to them about behaviors the same way I talk to anyone about behaviors. How are they moving? How are they pairing up their foods, you know, with the carbohydrates and the fats and the proteins? How's their sleep? How's their stress management? And then whatever medications we need to use to bring their blood sugar down, um, that's the approach. And of course, you know, weight may change as a result of those behaviors. And, you know, a lot of people don't realize that people actually lose weight when their blood sugar is uncontrolled. You know, like a lot of times when people are first diagnosed with diabetes, one of the initial signs could be like unintentional weight loss. So, of course, once you start treating the diabetes, their weight could go up because they start holding on to muscle and fat differently. So there's a lot of reasons that weight can change. And it's a data point. It doesn't have to be, in my opinion, you know, the end all be all. And it's just something else to kind of put into the clinical perspective. And even if someone's weight doesn't change, you know, by increasing activity and focusing on all the things I mentioned, they will be healthier in their numbers, most likely, and hopefully will get better. 
And that's at the core of a weight neutral approach is just saying that we're going to do and add in all the things that we know are health promoting. We're still going to talk about things like fiber. We're still going to talk about adding in more plants and moving your body in ways that you enjoy, um, which I think is, is one of the things that people find difficult to understand because weight as a proxy for health has been such a mainstay of that conventional paradigm around managing anything, but especially a metabolic condition. So why do you, why do you think that there's still so much stigma around diabetes, given everything that we know and all of the influences and the various factors that might, you know, lead someone to developing diabetes? Where's the stigma coming from? I mean, you say everything that we know, which is like people that are like working in this space, but the average person on the street here is type two diabetes. They don't think about family history, you know, genetics. They don't think about, you know, stress and access to healthcare and all that stuff. They think this person's not eating, you know, quote unquote healthy and this person's not exercising. So that's why they have type two diabetes. So it's just breaking through that, you know, long held belief, which is just not true. I mean, a lot of people get diabetes who, are living all the healthy behaviors and, you know, they have a medical condition, you know, they need to take steroids because they have arthritis or they have, you know, some other thing going on that affects their pancreas and they get diabetes. There's lots of reasons, you know, people have high blood sugar. So what would be some of the thing, the, the major influences on type two diabetes in particular? Genetics is a huge one. Um, things like PCOS, like polycystic ovarian syndrome, right, is insulin resistance, which can predispose people to type 2 diabetes. Um, obviously, the lifestyle things do play a role. So people aren't getting activity, they're not getting enough sleep, and, you know, not eating a balanced diet. All those things can play a role, of course. Stress, um, certain medications, you know, uh, antipsychotic medications, antidepressants, some of these can affect blood sugar. So there's lots of, lots of variables. Yeah. And I think that especially the genetic component sometimes surprises people because diabetes has this, this label, especially type two as being a diet and lifestyle disease. Um, and people don't realize the genetic, how strong is the genetic component with type two diabetes? It's pretty strong. I mean, you, you definitely have, you know, five to 10% increase, I would say you know, have a family history. Yeah. I mean, it's- and so when combined with all of the other things that, you know, we might experience through our lifetime, like you mentioned, you know, di- other diagnoses or medications, it's easy to see that it's more than just what you're eating or not eating. Right. Absolutely. Where do you find people are most confused when it comes to nutrition and managing their diagnosis? I think most people have been taught or they hear, you know, that they can't eat any carbohydrates at all if you have diabetes, um, which is, excuse me, which is problematic because our body needs fuel, right? So we talk about pairing up carbohydrates with proteins and fruits and vegetables, all the stuff that, you know, you know about, we talk about, um, but not having any carbs, not only is not sustainable, but people tend to feel pretty crummy, you know, in the long run by not having that major fuel source can lead to irritability and changes in digestion and energy loss and all these things. 
Yeah, so I want to say that again, because one of my my big missions on social media and in this podcast is to debunk the myths around carbohydrates in particular. And so, you know, with midlife, and there's a lot of changes that happen around menopause. And if that comes with changes in blood sugar or a a diagnosis of, of diabetes, people get really scared. And they they immediately and are often told by their healthcare providers, just cut your carbs, watch your carbs, you know, don't have carbs at certain times of day. And as we had, uh, we had Danielle Bublitz on the on the podcast talking about that. And, and I've talked about it a lot. But I just want, you know, to say one more time, <laughs> carbohydrates do not need to be eliminated, even if someone has diabetes, right? Correct. Excellent. You know, excuse me, the thing is, listening to your body, right? So if you just eat a carbohydrate by yourself and you feel, or if you're somebody who's monitoring your blood sugar, if you see a big spike and then a drop, or your sugar stays high, you don't feel good, you're thirsty, your energy drops, take note, you know, and then maybe try and pair it up with something else or try a different kind of carbohydrate or whatever, you know, so the body knows, it gives you feedback and, and that's really what you should be eating, not what someone else is telling you you should be eating. So can we talk about sugar as well? Because that's another big point of confusion and misinformation that, you know, obviously sugar and what we eat can impact our blood, uh, blood sugar and overall health. But is there any evidence that eating sugar causes diabetes? No. No. And so when people have diabetes, they don't have to avoid it, completely eliminate it, or worry that they've done something to cause it by by having dessert or a chocolate bar, right? Correct. I mean, obviously, that can take an effect, have an effect on the blood sugar, and that's something to take note of. Um, but the other stigma is around medication, right? So sometimes you just need medication to cover the nutrition that yeah. you want and need in your life, and that's just part of diabetes and there's nothing to be ashamed of or feel bad about by needing medication but you know sometimes just eating you know in line with how your body wants to eat means taking some medication to cover it yeah and i think that the the narrative around sugar especially becomes really moralized that you're being a good diabetic if you're not having any sugar versus being someone who is managing their blood sugar by including all the foods that they enjoy in ways that are supportive of blood sugar balance. Those are two very different conversations. Totally. I, mean, um, I think, you know, you have to look at it as really a marathon too, not a sprint. And, you know, I think that living in such a restricted way of eating when food is supposed to be pleasurable and things that we can enjoy um, that could create a lot of burnout for someone with diabetes, which in the long run affects your quality of life. So there's ways to live with diabetes and eat and enjoy cultural things and be at parties and all this stuff, but just figuring out what works for that person as an individual. Yeah. And I want to come back to something that you said about, you know, medication and there's no stigma in medication. There's there's such a, um, I guess, a halo around or an expectation that something like diabetes, which is a quote unquote lifestyle disease, can be managed 100% with diet and lifestyle. 
And so when I'm working with people to redefine their relationship with food, I'm always trying to manage those expectations that not everything can actually be treated with food and lifestyle. And that sometimes we need to have that, you know, holistic approach, which can include medication. Is that kind of something that you see in your practice as well, that people feel like they're doing something wrong because they haven't been able to control it with diet? Um, Yeah, and I try and obviously dispel that, you know, myth. And then there's people that really want to come off the medication, which I totally get. But, you know, that's hard to do. I mean, some people obviously can take minimal medication and keep it controlled, but it's pretty hard to come off the medication. Moving on a little bit. So when people hear diabetes or they're given this diagnosis... And this often happens around midlife. So as estrogen declines, there may be an association. We don't exactly know if it's a cause and effect, but there seems to be an association for some people, something we need to look out for. Um, that insulin resistance may start to show up. They may start to, you know, even kind of head into that territory of diabetes. And when they hear that, they immediately think weight loss or are sometimes prescribed weight loss as a treatment. So and the, the conversations that I have with people are often around, well, I've tried dieting my whole life. I, I have I have done every plan, every diet, and it works for a little while, but it doesn't work in the long term. Is there anything else that I can do? Which is where I think the weight neutral approach kind of really shines. So how what kinds of things would you direct people to consider or talk to their healthcare providers if they were trying to remain in that weight neutral space or weight inclusive space? I think talk about behaviors, you know, without focusing on the weight because it's normal for the body to change, obviously, as we go through life and doing things like lifting weights or yoga or anything else, you know, beyond their usual exercise may be helpful to mix it up, you know, um, Midlife, sometimes sleep can be challenging as people are going through menstrual changes because of the the hot flashes and all the other stuff. So talking to the gynecologist or, you know, whoever can support them and making sure that they're getting sleep and managing those, you know, quote unquote, vasomotor symptoms. Mm -hmm. Um, Mood can fluctuate a lot. So, if you know, someone's feeling depressed or anxious, you know, getting help for that. So just really looking at the whole the whole picture of what's going on. Yeah. So what are some of the other misconceptions? We've kind of covered a lot of them. We've talked about carbohydrates and sugar and weight loss as like a goal. What are some of the other misconceptions that people have around body size and, and diabetes? Right. That, you know, anyone, anyone and everyone in a larger body is going to get diabetes or has diabetes or is sitting around not moving or not eating, you know, quote unquote, the right way. That's certainly not true. Um, I see people across the size spectrum who have type two diabetes and a lot of the conditions I treat, you know, whether it's thyroid or osteoporosis or whatever. So just trying to break through that. I remember you sharing something on your Instagram earlier this year. That was, I think it was a, it's a fairly large study of, I think over, I think it was a couple million people where they were looking at people by BMI, which we all know is problematic for lots of different reasons, but that the, it was the people in the quote unquote normal BMI range of that 20 to 25 that had the greatest increase in new diagnosis, but that people in, in the higher ranges, the, the, the rate of diagnosis was actually stable. Right. Am I right about that? Am I remembering that? 
Yes, I vaguely remember that. <laughs> I guess just to kind of you know drive home yeah, the idea. Yeah, that I'd have to look back size. and see what the <laughs> the punchline was, but yes, I do remember that, and it sounds like something that I would find interesting because obviously it goes against. Sorry, I didn't mean to put you on the spot. With no, that. no, um, no, it, it was definitely definitely something like that. Because people hear so much about you know, waist circumference and, you know, this, the visceral, you know, adiposity and, and, and this idea develops that you can tell that someone, and I'm saying tell in air quotes, has diabetes or insulin resistance just by looking at them. Right. Is that the case? No, that's totally ridiculous. (laughs) You know, I, you know, speaking of posts, I know I posted something at one point about like, I walk walk through beautiful Central Park every day to get to work, and I see all types of bodies, you know, running and biking and all this stuff, including fat bodies. If I saw those people, like, somewhere else out of that context, or even in that context where I just assume, hey, that person's, you know, in a larger body, they must have diabetes. I mean, you know, it makes no sense. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously, I think a lot of the questions that I've been asking you, hopefully, you know, this is information that is going to reassure people, um, especially around that, you know, this isn't, um, this isn't a moral failure, if you're diagnosed with this at any age for any reason, and that the size of your body, you know, isn't involved in the in the, the diagnosis, meaning that like, it's not the determining factor, and that there's so many other things that can be done in a weight inclusive, weight neutral space. Is there anything else that you would offer as kind of parting advice to anybody who might be feeling really scared? Cause that's pretty common with this diagnosis um, and feeling like they've done something wrong or to cause this. Yeah. I'd say number one, you know, a lot of our control is out of our, out of our control. So, you know, and even if it does happen, even if you could say, this is my fault, doesn't do you any good. You know, you gotta, you gotta move forward. And thankfully, we have so many, so many good resources, you know, medications and exercise, fun exercise programs and other things that we could suggest and nutrition changes and so many other ways to approach this, irrespective of weight, um, that could help someone have a long, healthy, good quality of life, you know, diabetes or not. And a healthy relationship with food needs to be part of that, not one that's based on fear. Totally. Yeah, Yeah. because then you take away the quality of life. If food is something that, you know, we can and should find pleasurable and going to parties and family events and not, you know, feeling like anything's off limits is a big, a big goal. Absolutely. We need food joy in our life, not just nutrition. Right, right. Um, So I always ask my guests, and I didn't prep you for this, but I always ask my guests what they think the missing ingredient in midlife is. So I would love to hear your answer. I think probably like hobbies. Yeah. Yeah. We we definitely need more time to do fun things, don't we? I, you know, I think about it a lot and I ask patients who are like about to retire and I'm like, you know, everyone works so hard. What are you going to do when you retire? Do you have hobbies? What do you, and a lot of people don't, you know, and the, and the people that do well in retirement are the people that volunteer and they take classes and they, you know, have goals, mm-hmm. other goals. So, you know, I think midlife is a time where like you're like mid-career potentially or towards the end of the career and so much your focus has been on that and family and then, you know, that kind of is wrapping up in some sense and then, you know, what's next? So I would say 
planning for the next next phase of life is important. I love that. The next season of life. I, uh, I'm going to try and find a new hobby. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much for taking the time today. I really appreciate. I know that your words of reassurance will, will go a long way. And I appreciate you um, taking time out of your busy day. I hope so. Thank you very much. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Midlife Feast. For more non-diet health, hormone, and general midlife support, click the link in the show notes to learn how you can work and learn from me. And if you enjoyed this episode and found it helpful, please consider leaving a review or subscribing because it helps other women just like you find us and feel supported in midlife.